0: Log Talk Radio. Welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show, with your featured host, Char McCain, a forensics counselor, psychic, writer, artist, modern-day Christian mystic, and UFO experiencer. Char introduced guests who are experts on all aspects of the paranormal and the sacred. The Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show has been featured on Blog Talk Radio as Staff Pick. And now for your host, Shaw McCain.
1: Hey, hi
2: everybody. It's Shaw McCain of the Paranormal and the Sacred. I'd like to welcome everybody here tonight as we listen in on an extraordinary person. Um, Michael Sellers graduated magna cum laude from the University of Delaware, where he was a Rhodes Scholarship and Dance Force Fellowship finalist. He went on to New York University Graduate Film School and Hollywood, where his film career was interrupted by an opportunity to serve undercover as an operations officer for the Central Intelligence Agency. He spent the next 10 years with the CIA in Eastern Europe, Africa, Moscow, and the Philippines, where he was awarded the Intelligence Commendation Medal for his service during a violent coup attempt against the government of Corazon Aquino in December of 1989. In 1990, he resumed his creative career, and from 1990 to 2003, he produced a dozen independent feature films. From 2003 to 2010, he directed four feature films, including the award-winning Vlad 2013 and The Eye of a Dolphin 2017. His films have been selected for more than 100 film festivals and won multiple awards. And let's see, since 2011, Soros has turned his attention to nonfiction books, including the best-selling John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood and Upcoming Year of the Spy. He is currently working on a documentary film of the life of Edgar Rice Burroughs and is writing and developing nonfiction books and documentary films. Soros is an associate at Brown and associates a criminal defense investigation and mitigation firm in Los Angeles. He's married to beautiful Lorena Lovato Sellers, and has four grown children, Patrick, Pilar, Caitlin, and Michelle, and two grandchildren, Mason and Quinn. So we would like at this point to welcome Michael aboard the Paranormal Sacred Show. Hi, Michael.
0: Hi. How are you?
2: (laughs) I'm doing good. Well, you know, we're in in the topsy-turvy events of being uh, holding down the fort during this corona uh, pandemic,
1: Mm -hmm. as people...
2: Mm -hmm. So, how are you guys doing?
1: Same thing, kind of locked down, working from home, and uh, trying to make the most of it. Not too bad. Yeah, that's really good.
2: Now, um, Michael, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, where you were born and raised, a little bit of your growing up, your story?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I was born in Greenville, Alabama, which is a small town in South Alabama, famous not much except Hank Williams came from right down the road about 10 miles away. So it was a very, like 5,000 people. And, uh, but my father was an army officer. And so, uh, eventually we were moving around quite a bit and I ended up growing up uh, as an army brat. And, uh, I lived, I guess, I went to 13 schools in 12 years. So that kind of gives you an idea how much moving around there was. Um, I think I at different times we lived in Mississippi, Texas, Germany, Japan, uh, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and so on. So I ended up graduating from Carlisle high school in Pennsylvania and then went on to the university of Delaware for, for college and NYU for, uh, for graduate school. So that was kind of that part of my life and kind of, you know, moved around a lot and had a very, I think it was a good, a good upbringing in the sense that I was exposed to a lot, you know, got to different cultures and, and it was kind of interesting to be uprooted all the time and, uh, make new friends start over again you know, kind of on the one hand it was kind of stressful but on the other hand it was sort of uh i guess it was i felt like it was good it was a good opportunity to sort of uh go new places and meet new people and stuff like that so then after that um i i left nyu came out to hollywood got started in a film career didn't get very far into it i was a little bit uh disappointed that Hollywood didn't appreciate my genius uh, as quickly as, as I thought they should. And um, it was about that time that I, I had was given the opportunity to uh, – I was approached by the CIA. Um, and that actually wasn't the first time that had happened. It happened when I was a senior in college, and I had gone to New York City for the finals of a scholarship competition. It was a Rhodes Scholarship competition. I didn't get the scholarship but the uh, the CIA had a sort of a recruiter there who talked to me and said, we don't take people right out of college, but you know, maybe you would be interested later on. And I didn't think too much of it. But then back when I got out to LA, it's now five years later and um, they, they approached me again. And this time I sort of was intrigued, you know, and I, I, uh, I was very kind of, you might not think of me as, I, I certainly didn't think of myself as typical for that sort of thing. At that point in my life, I had a beard, long hair, didn't own a suit, played guitar in clubs at night, aside, aside from, you know, playing, uh, working in, in the film industry, and was very liberal-minded. I was a green piecer. I had actually been on the Rainbow Warrior. And uh, so not exactly what you'd think of as somebody who would join the government. But then again, I had been an Army, you know, an Army brat growing up in a service family. And I kind of knew that world. And, and uh, you know, it had an appeal to me. And it's certainly, the, the, the kind of the adventure of it, and also the learning languages and traveling. And I decided I'd go ahead and give it a try for a while, um, but kind of with the plan to not do it for a whole career because I wanted to get back to film. And that's basically what I did. I did the 10 years in CIA. Um, that was from 1981 to 1991. And uh, I was first, my first tour of duty was in Ethiopia, which was kind of interesting. It was a communist country at the time, kind of like going to Cuba. Then I went from there. To Moscow, Um, and I was there for two years at a really kind of major pivotal moment of the Cold War, and I was involved in a lot of stuff there, which we'll probably talk about. You know, uh, my book Year of the Spy is about that. And then from there, I went to the Philippines, was there for four years, uh, and then got out of the CIA and went back into film. Only I did it in the Philippines to start with, so I I set up a company there, and I was doing co-productions, bringing over U.S. companies and European companies to do filming on location in the Philippines. I did that from, like, 1991 for about eight or nine years, then came back to L.A. In around 2000. I've been making films, you know, doing films between 1991 and, and and now, really, although I did feature films between 1990 and 2010, and mostly now I'm doing, like, documentaries and um, smaller films. I did go out and direct a TV uh tv movie a christmas a christmas comedy uh uh, you know kind of a hallmark thing last year Um, but other than that i'm I'm mostly working on documentaries and stuff and then i have a i have a day job i guess we all do right my day job is an investigator and i'm an investigator for john brown associates we do criminal defense investigations and um i'm involved in all kinds of uh criminal cases criminal defense cases and uh, with a lot of clients and some pretty interesting uh, interesting situations there. So at least I'm not bored, and I'm pretty busy, and I don't know when I'm ever going to retire. Probably I'll have to be 85 before I have a chance to even think about retiring. So uh, I got a lot of work ahead of me, I suppose.
2: Yeah, we need you out here. Uh, you're smart. You're kind. You're very creative, and we need more people like you on this planet. So we're going to keep you working for a while, Michael. I,
1: you know, I, 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 I wouldn't know what to do. I can't really imagine retiring, but I can imagine slowing down a little bit, or I can imagine, you know, focusing purely on things that I really want to do as opposed to things that I sort of, you know, have to do. So I do have some desire to, you know, kind of get a little more freedom that way, but I don't really have any desire to slow down working or stop working. Maybe slow down a little bit, but certainly not stop. I don't know what would happen if I did that.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, then you would just write more you know, because mm-hmm. your so, Could you could you tell us uh, the titles of some of your books and where to get them?
1: Yeah, well, you're, uh, John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood was the one that for some reason became, uh was an Amazon bestseller. Did, it did really well in its category. It's a, it's a behind-the-scenes Hollywood story of the kind of epic uh, disaster of Disney's handling of uh, their film, John Carter, which some people may know. That was in, based on A Princess of Mars, Edgar Rice Burroughs' sci-fi movie I happen to be a big fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs had been my whole life a lot of the documentary stuff that I do has to do with him and with his books and um and so that book was one that I wrote kind of in anger when I saw how badly Disney had kind of bungled the marketing of the movie and uh so I ended up interviewing everybody and doing it and I really honestly did the book kind of out of just out of frustration at what what had happened and it did well. And now, I mean, it's still out there and still, you know, bringing in, I mean, it's amazing. It's been eight or seven or eight years since I did that one. It's doing pretty well. Then I had, I did one about the Philippines called Warriors of Samar. And uh, yes. and did one with my, in, with my wife uh, called uh, Daughter of Samar. That, uh, that's her story. She's from there. And uh, it's an island in the Philippines. It's kind of famous for certain things. And then, um and then I have Year of the Spy that's uh in the work now. In fact it's finished but it's being reviewed by CIA. It's about nineteen eighty five Moscow. And because it's about, you know, intelligence stuff I had to submit it for pre publication review and that's a long and arduous process. And so um I'm hopefully nearing the end of that. And it should be coming out in the next uh six months or a year or so.
2: Well, I wish you all the best with that. Uh it sounds fascinating. We can hardly wait. And uh how many languages do you speak, Michael?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I was fluent in in uh, three at the time years ago: Russian, uh, Amharic, which is the language of Ethiopia, and Tagalog, the language of the Philippines. Um, the only one that I'm really any good at anymore is probably Tagalog. I, I went to I went to Ukraine last year and gave my Russian a workout. And I was a little bit disappointed that I, I, cause when I was in Moscow, I was, you know, I was good. I could pass as a Russian and, and had to sometimes, you know, and, but that's and that was 1985. So you can count the years. And I haven't used it much since then. So those are the three that I had a little bit of Polish, a little bit of Greek. I studied ancient Greek and Latin in college. So that was my sort of foundation for, for uh, languages. And uh, then I learned modern Greek, um, you know kind of as a spin off from the ancient greek but didn't get to use it very much except when i was in college i spent a year over there um but yeah those are the ones. I mean i guess there's more than the 3 that i mentioned but you know the it's kind of like some of them are pretty yeah. far in the past and don't get used very much
2: you went to greece too mhm
1: i did i was uh, um i was a i had a minor in classics And I was, I was studying ancient Greek and, and, and Latin and, you know, everything goes along with that. And I got to go spend, it was a semester, a semester in Greece, my my junior year. And I loved it. My favorite place. Wow. Wow.
2: Yeah. My, my uh, mother's parents are from Greece. My mom's first generation here.
1: Oh, I I didn't know that.
2: No, I know. It's, uh, It's the, I think if you get the, the Greek down, you got it all. If you get the classics going and, uh, Mm-hmm. It helps uh, you be broader and you're able to speak and uh, interesting
1: <clears throat> Well, you know, that's what I learned. I mean, I, when I had, when I was joining CIA, they make you take the MLAT test, or what your know, language aptitude, and I, having done Latin and Greek, you know, I did. I did really well, even though I didn't at that point have because the other languages I learned, I learned after. You know, I went into CIA, but yeah, it was a big help to study those languages, and um, they kind of give you a grounding. I think that would help you with any kind of you know Western language, maybe not Chinese, but you know, uh, any any kind of Indo-European language.
2: Okay, now as we segue into your tour in the CIA. Um, when you were um recruited how did you feel about that
1: i was i was conflicted honestly i mean it's it's this is something i've written about in this book because i mean i was a real pretty think i was a literal, liberal or radical i mean you know like i said you know greenpeace all those things environmentalism um i i was you know this was in 79 which was a few years after the Famous Church Committee hearings in '74, '75, where the CIA was accused of being a rogue elephant out of control, and there was that whole, you know, idea of all the bad things that sort of CIA had done. And then at the same time, um, you know, like I guess it comes from that military background. I kind of had a, a, another insight into it, and I, I, I didn't see it quite that way. But I was conflicted, and I, and I really, you know, I, I thought pretty hard about it. Um, talked to some people who, you know, I respected. And, of course, through the interview, the process of getting drawn into it is a very long, you know, it starts with, you know, one interview, then another series of interviews. And they take you to Washington and you meet more people and do more interviews and have a physical exam and have a psychological exam and then a sort of polygraph. And so through that whole process, you're kind of gradually getting to meet real people that are really, you know, in the agency and you're beginning to get a, a level of comfort. I did. Uh, And at the end of the day, I I didn't have any any regrets, you know, when I went in, and I don't have any regrets now, but it was a process, you know, and it started from a place of being, you know, kind of drawn to it, and at the same time, Mm -hmm. you know, wondering if I was somehow selling out or if I was, you know, kind of getting into something I didn't want to get into.
2: Well, that's a lot to think about, because I always thought of it in terms of, well, I can never talk to my family again. Like what am I going to talk to my friends about? Like, don't you have to keep a lot of secrets?
1: Well, you have a, you have a too. You know, in other words, one of the things about CIA, if you're undercover in Iowa, as I was, you know, you have a job, an official job. Mine was the State Department diplomat. You know, and um, and so you, you know, you 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 tell the story and you kind of explain it so many times that you kind of almost believe it. And in fact, you know, in an embassy or working that way, you do have cover responsibilities. So I was really doing real work especially my early, my first tour in Ethiopia, I did all kinds of real work for the, for the state department, as well as my you know CIA work. But, but I mean, that, that's an aspect of it. So, yeah, but you, you do, you're lying to people, but you don't exactly think of it that way. You think of it as a, playing a role. I mean, you know, it, it, to say as a CIA officer that you're lying all the time is like telling an actor that they're lying all the time. Right. I mean, yeah, they're lying yeah. and they're playing a role and you're lying, you know, you're playing a role, but that, you know, that is, it does have a an effect on you. I think that, Learning, I, you know, I, I remember, you know, I was doing things in in Alias, and it was to the point where someone ever asked me my name, I had like a mental set of breaks you know, that would give me like a split second to think about it before I even answer what my name was, because uh, you know there are times when I had to give a name other than my own, um, you know, and it's sort of the same thing with the cover story. So that that part, but then your family, I mean, you know, I was able to tell my mom and dad what I was doing when I when I joined, and then. uh when I got married, I married somebody who was an officer in the CIA too. So um, that was, you know, my first wife, Lucy, who uh, that's how we met was in CIA. And so we didn't have a problem. Although even, even with that, we couldn't really talk to each other. if We were working on different things because you have what they call compartmentation. So, you know, although in general, we could talk about it. We, you know, if we were on different projects, we wouldn't be able to talk about the details of our work to each other. But generally speaking, I, so I didn't feel too burdened by that, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was kind of, I think it was a trade-off. You had that on the one side and the other side you were in, you know, you're kind of getting drawn into something kind of secret and exciting and interesting. And, you know, me- it has the potential at least to be meaningful. Um, and so, you know, I was okay with it, but, uh, and I, and I really, like I said, I enjoyed the 10 years. I didn't get out because I was unhappy or anything. I just want to get back to my creative, you know, uh, my creative career, which I felt like I had just taken a detour from, you know, I, I, I never thought the CIA was going to be a 25-year thing for me.
2: Wow. Well, it's a, it sounds very interesting, and uh, you have kind of had to keep up on your toes your whole life, moving all the time when you were a kid. I had a similar mm-hmm. uh, childhood, but they used to say, are you guys in the Army? And no, I and just we move a lot. But anyway, the uh, mm-hmm. – uh, it, it makes you into a different kind of person. You actually can think on your feet. If uh, you're throwing something, you make something out of it. You know, even if you haven't have nothing. And uh, I think, I so. think that all yeah. kind of created, created uh, or allowed room f- to, for you to be creative and as uh, <laughs> big as you are, because because you have a lot of skill and talent.
1: You know, I mean, I I think that I really treasured that that upbringing, you know? I mean, there was only one time that I was really unhappy about. I mean, this thing, just all those years, all those moves, I was fine with it, except for my, my sophomore year of high school. We were in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and I was supposed to be there for three years, so I was going to have sophomore, junior, and senior in one one place. And uh, I had had a really great sophomore, like, football season. I made the varsity. I, was playing, I actually was a starter by the end of the year, and I made the varsity basketball team, and I had all this stuff going on. And I was going to be, I was all set, right? And then my father came home one night in March and said that he had been selected for the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which was a really big deal for his career, and that we would be leaving in a couple of uh, months to go to Carlisle, and I was broken up by it. I mean, I, I cried. I was just, you know, I, I fought my whole life. That was the only time. But, you know, by the time we were in the car driving up to Pennsylvania, I was excited, you know, looking forward to yeah. it, and it worked out fine. So, you know, that was it. But other than that, I, I don't remember ever being you know, really distraught about it. It was just a way of life that we, you know, accepted, and and I thought it was okay.
2: Yeah, I I so I think that all of our experiences kind of lead us into what we are today, and uh, mm-hmm. I think made us stronger people. And uh, now yeah. I'd like to go into some of your uh, experiences that. Uh, Something that is so interesting to me is I uh, have had many, many experiences along these lines, but I wanted to talk to you about the CIA and remote viewing. And Mm -hmm. uh, did you go into training for that?
1: No, I, I, you know, I can talk about it, but I should clarify that when I, I when I went in, first of all, I didn't even know what remote viewing was. Right. And I didn't know any of this stuff. And I, but I found out when I got, when I went in there that they had a, a unit that was doing that and that it worked. I mean, that was the, that was what I was told or that was sort of what you would call the hallway gossip was that, yeah, they have a group that does this and, you know, it, it, it it's real. Um, but that was it because, you know, everything in the CIA is compartmented, right? You don't, you know, you don't get to go wonder about what everybody else is doing. So over the course of the time I was in CIA, I didn't learn that much about it. I brushed up against it a few times. Um, met some of the people, uh, but never really got totally immersed in it. But, but since, you know, getting out, I've, I've studied it a bit. And um, so I have, like, one perspective on it from when I was in there, just the fact that it, it was, you know, I, I quickly, I was shocked at first, frankly, because I hadn't, you know, I wasn't into that sort of thing. And I was shocked that they had a unit doing that. I was shocked that it was considered to be a, a real thing. Um, I could see how it would be very valuable in intelligence if you could do it. And, and make it work. Um, but then, you know, and subsequently, you know, they declassified the program in 1995 and, um, and yeah. I've talked to people and, so, and all of that. So I've learned, learned a bit that way, but it was, it was just, a, for me at the time, it was really something about um, it, it, just to, to think that it was something, some, you know, grounded operation like the CIA would be doing that um, and giving value to it. I thought was just really interesting and it caused me to change my attitude about it, you know, completely. And, uh, and, you know, it was enough to tell me that it's real and, and and, and, it seems that it was. And, you know, it's interesting too, because they really began, the CIA began doing that out of fear that the Russians were doing it themselves and doing more of it and better at it. You know, some, in like 1971, the, the Russians, you know, the CIA got reporting that the Russians were spending like 300 million rubles on on this program, and then the next year it was supposed to be five hundred million, and they figured if they were spending that much money, it had to be had to be real, and they better catch up because it could be used against them. And so that, like a lot of things in the Cold War, it was really spurred initially by the uh, by the Russians apparently gaining an advantage by getting ahead of America on
2: Yeah, I do. I remember that. Because uh, there was, uh, there was actually a little bit of news about it, not a lot. But I uh, had, well, my my grandma, my yaya from uh, Greece, uh, mm-hmm. we say that she had X-ray vision
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> because she knew what you were doing all the time. So mm-hmm. what she would do is stand behind the door. With a big wooden spoon and start whacking. Kids. She had nine kids. She start whacking mm-hmm. them as they came to the door for whatever they did. You know what I mean?
0: hmm. Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, that gift has skipped my mother, but has come to me. So I have. Oh always, really? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So yeah. so always since childhood, uh, and they used to even talk. Talk. You know, they'd say that about me. You know, that mm-hmm. God, you like your grandmother. And um.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm.
2: my mother would think of me and I would show up, and it would startle her, and it continues to do that to this day, because uh, if she needs anything, my mother now is in Texas, but she needs anything, if she's in trouble, I just, all I do is call her up. I say, okay, Mom, it's time to call the, the ambulance. You know, it's just happened last month.
0: And she says, first
2: of all, call. And she'll say, why are you calling me? I said, Mom, because, you know, I'm your conscience. I'll, I'll joke with her like that. You know what I mean? And then I mm-hmm. said, Mom, What's wrong with you? She said, well, I can't move my leg. So I had her in an ambulance and gone, and it doesn't matter how far away I am, you know. And well, another example is that I'm very close. To, to everybody that I'm close to, it's easy for me to, to do this. But
0: mm-hmm. one
2: time my son went to China, and I just had a weird feeling about him. So I just picked up my little cell phone. I called him in China. Believe it or not, he picked up. He said, Mom, I called just like my mother, why are you calling me in China? I said, Micah, because I'm worried about you. What's wrong? He said, okay, to tell you the truth, I'm in China. Everything is written in Chinese, and I'm lost. So I just did a, just, uh, a focus on him. I said, you're in an alley, mm-hmm. right? He said, yes, but kind of used to me doing this. So he didn't act too, mm-hmm. too surprised. Just mm-hmm. scared of it was. I said, okay, so keep walking down the alley and keep going, keep talking to me, stay calm. And I said, okay, now look to your right. He looked to the right. I said, is there a group of people over there? He said, yeah. I said, well, the tourists walk over there and they all speak English. And that's it. So he walked mm-hmm. up to him and it was a group of tourists and that was it. But it, it doesn't matter. The The interesting thing about this and what I think is useful is that it doesn't matter how far away. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. A distance and right. time, it crosses distance and time, and I think mm-hmm. that's why it's very useful.
1: Sure. Well, what you just described is really like the classic kind of thing that the CIA would set up. They would on the tra- in the training or the testing of it, they wouldn't have somebody as far away as China, but they would have them far away. But there would be the be- what they call the beacon, you know, who would who would be the, yes. the person in this case, like your son, and then you know the the viewer. Um, and, and you know, go through a process very much like what you just described in um, you know, order to, you know, and, they were, and they were it was successful at times. It was, and, of course, I think you've read about it, you know, that it wasn't, like, successful all the time. But in the program, they considered if it was successful 65% of the time that that was, you know, that that was, was, was good. And they claimed that, you know, with many of the, the – I think there were 23 different people they had over the program who were, who were actually the remote viewers. And, uh, you know, that some of them were consistently well above, you know, 65%. And, um, you know, they had a term that they used called an eight-martini viewing. And that was when the the, the viewing exercise that they did produced such an astonishing result that you needed eight martinis to uh, (laughs) to process it afterwards. So, uh, you know, and and so it it sounds like, you know. Huh? Yeah, you would have it's, been good at that.
2: You would, not, they should have gotten you. Well, I <laughs> am. I I really, in my secret heart's desire, I wanted to be in the CIA. I don't think mm. I've ever said that out loud in my whole life. But <laughs> I looked into it. <laughs> well, you know, it it's funny. I, they, <laughs> had a, they had a
1: unit. They had a unit that you would have been, you know, ideal for. You I'm know? too scared and, um, I'd,
2: never, I'd never pass the background <clears throat> check. You know what I mean? I, I just never. No. I wouldn't be able to do the. Lie detector test, who knows what I'd be up to or what they asked me, so I never did it. But
1: <laughs> yeah, I would have I passed, mean, okay? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You might. You, might. you know, it's, uh, you, you probably would. It was like a lie detector test is not a uh, – I mean, you can feel – actually, I could feel it. when I'm taking it. You can kind of feel like if they're – because they give you a control questions that you give the wrong answer to, and even if it's something as simple as they're showing you a card and it's a queen of hearts. and they tell you to say that it's an eight of diamonds, right? Even when you do yeah. that, I can kind of feel these these changes. you know I can feel that i i'm mm-hmm. I'm reacting you know <clears throat> and so um but I mean it was never I had to take about three or four of them over the course of my time, I never had any real big problems with it wow
2: that's that's great i just I never trusted myself to to be able to go through something like that. That kind of scrutiny, let's put it that way. But um, you know, but I but I just actually uh, just about five days ago I joined a uh, remote viewing sort of online class kind of thing, Mm
0: -hmm. but it's
2: test your abilities in remote viewing. So this Mm -hmm. is something I've never done before because to me, uh, if there's emotional content in it or if I'm worried about it. Somebody asked me a specific question. I'm able to get it and understand. But this was mm-hmm. like a, a a set of coordinates. It was an actual place that only has the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So I did that, and then I followed the way, the format they wanted. And the format they want is you put your you know, your name in the, the date and everything in the right-hand corner, and then you start all your other stuff on the left and drawing and everything else. So Mm -hmm. I only did it for about five minutes and I started drawing stuff. I didn't understand a few of the things I drew. Like, what is that? I started drawing these little round balls. Okay. You know, whatever. And then I started drawing water because I I knew for a doubt water was the big uh, issue here. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so you were able to test. I I did a, a square and there was white balls on top of it. And, then I did uh, water because I it was definitely so mm-hmm. anyway so I looked I looked at the coordinates so I actually posted it but then I looked at the coordinates to see what it was that I was looking at and it's actually two two water towers in Kuwait and I looked oh, at wow. it, and I went I know it was a trip because I had never <laughs> ever done like a blind thing like this before and then I said okay how where
1: you-
0: are the <laughs>
2: it was weird yeah, I said okay it- where
0: are the-?
1: But how does it work Like if you, they give you the – because this is one of the, the one of the things oh. they didn't see. They they called it coordinate remote viewing, which is what you just exactly. described. I'm just – how do you – but how do you – if you don't – I don't understand how you connect – how the coordinates are meaningful to – you know what I mean? I can understand, like, they for are. example, if your son I, – I mean, so, Go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm just saying. How do you you're, – you're reading these coordinate numbers well,
2: that's what, somehow – Well, that's what happened to me. I went into shock. So anyway, I said, okay, where the – okay, I could see there was a block wall in front of the two water towers. Mm
0: -hmm. And then Mm
2: -hmm. I was thinking, okay, there's a wall that could make those square box I drew. That makes sense. I said, okay, where are the little balls? And I swear to God, in the background were all these little – a line of white balls on each side of the tower. Wow. I was quite quite shocked, really, because it was the first time I didn't have any emotion tied with it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then I thought –
1: Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that I wondered about that actually, because I know that when they do the tests, like sometimes in the CIA, they would be doing tests like five envelopes with different pictures in them or, you know, different things that have no emotional or no connect. I mean, it's like, I, I, I can, it's just interesting to me because a lot of times it seems to be triggered in people like yourself that with, you know, an emotional connection to some person somewhere else. um, Right. Whereas they're trying to do it, you know, without that. And, uh, I just wonder how, you know, how that, you know, is they the same process or is it really like a different, you know, is the emotional connection function somehow differently than this other, this other way you do it?
2: Well, I just, what I felt about it is that if that's the way it works, that any, anybody can do it. I just was mm-hmm. stunned that I got the water towers, you know, um, I knew it was about water, but then I saw other stuff that didn't show up like a, a man in a slicker, uh, oh. But that could be the people that work on the towers, you know what I mean? So I was getting stuff that had nothing to do with what I was seeing in the picture, you Mm -hmm. know, but
0: Mm -hmm. you could,
2: so that's what was the interesting part. But I really almost discounted it until I looked closer and saw that the elements that I was drawing were in the, was, was in the uh, picture that I observed at those coordinates.
0: Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know
2: how a mechanism works. I just, you know, I do what they say. Mm -hmm. You have to free your mind. The only Mm -hmm. thing I have trouble with now is without it being a useful purpose and intent, why would I do it?
0: Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I understand that.
1: You know, the CIA thought it was was a capability that sort of everybody either potentially had or in the past humans had had. And somehow it had been sort of... um, that was their way of, I guess, rationalizing it. I don't know, you know, that this is not like uh, that. It, that it is a, it's a, it's something that humans have, or have had, but have sort of lost. And some people haven't lost it, as opposed to it being something that, um, you know, that only certain individuals have or have the potential to have. And I don't know that, whether that has any truth to it or not, but I know that was their, their kind of working theory about it.
2: Um, I agree with you because I think that. Uh, There's certain, humans have certain gifts that have been kind of filtered out of our civilization, mm-hmm. but I had been actually, I went all the way back to uh, uh, Russia from the beginning, like for the 100s, all the way mm-hmm. up to now, because I wanted to know, you know, not to try to get into a thing, I hope I don't start, but I wanted <laughs> to know what Putin had to do with our government, like what is this whole drive to uh, undermine or get control over United States or what, you know, what's the whole background? I ended up going through Wiki and doing the whole timeline. And it took me a few weeks to get through
0: mm-hmm.
2: the entire history of Russia, but there was a lot of things going on. I mean, a lot of underhanded stuff going on all through the centuries, a lot of murders, mm-hmm. a lot of murdering, murdering of cousins and siblings to get power a lot of land grabs war over and over and over and over, but part of it there was also these people that uh that were healers, and they actually would call on these people because when you're doing a, studying a timeline like that, you end up going off track and on you know you you see somebody's name and you go track them and whatever mm-hmm. anyway, so there are people like in the middle of Siberia. That would be called upon just because they were healers they called them the blood stoppers let's say you had a deep cut and a wound and they would mm-hmm. call this person that would be known for healing that and they would come and they heal each other and they had people that could do it for animals you know for the most serious uh, injuries people would come and they would heal these injuries and they were mm-hmm. they, it was depend they depended on it it was like what you were talking about. It was like there was a mm-hmm. dependence on this skill that we've kind of, uh, kind. I don't know if this uh, shutdown gets any worse. We might have to start depending on this again. <laughs> we can't call yeah. each other or talk to each other anymore. We might have to start mm-hmm. doing it again.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, too, you know, it's funny because this whole remote viewing thing would be, I was thinking about what it's like to be, Trying to know what's going on in Russia when you can't get out and move around, right? I mean, in terms of you know, going back to the CIA, I mean, the whole idea of remote remote viewing was, of course, that they could gain access to places that they would be hard to get to, dangerous to get to, you know, and and would be able to see things and gather you know intelligence. And that was the the intelligence purpose of it. I'm just th- I've been thinking lately about what it would be like in the middle of this pandemic, you know, in an, in something like intelligence gathering where you know, traditionally, you do have to get out and move around, and uh, now, now would be the time, you know, to, uh, sure. to be able to use this kind of thing.
2: It was exactly my thought, and uh, then then you have another point that you made that I was reading in these notes that um, how does how can the CIA use certain ways to affect the perceptions of another person, like affect what they see and what they believe.
1: Mm, well, I was, I was thinking about that, you know, we were, I was, it goes to when I was in Moscow. I mean, that's a kind of a, in Moscow, first of all, I went there and I was there from 84 to 86, which was in the middle of the, well, it's kind of what would eventually be kind of like the, the climax of the cold war. And the, the way it was was that when a CIA officer like myself would go and serve in Moscow, I would have, you know, surveillance you know and the surveillance that was following me would be very discreet they wouldn't they wouldn't show themselves but we were trained you know to be able to find it and so but our the, the game if you will the espionage game that we were doing in moscow involved on perception on our side in the sense of being attuned to our surroundings i've never been as attuned to my surroundings as i was when i was trying to do something naughty in moscow under the noses of the surveillance, right? Um, you know, you, you, you would feel you, there was a level of heightened awareness that I, that I, I experienced that was just kind of interesting and it's never been really duplicated for me. So I would go out for example, and the way it worked for me was that I was, I was known to the Soviets as I mean, the, the KGB knew that I was CIA. So I had the surveillance all the time. And so for most, most of the time, if I was going to do an operational act, which would be, you know, passing a materials to an agent or you know, we, different kinds of things that we would go out and do, I had to escape from the surveillance without them knowing that I was gone. Perception was that they knew where I was, but they were wrong. I wasn't where I wasn't where they thought I was. They might think that I'm at a party, and in, in the apartment of some embassy colleague, but in reality, I'm somewhere else on the other side of town, and there's been some some device or mechanism that we created in order to make that happen. But the the surveillance is sitting there perceiving one set of one sort of reality. And, you know, I'm, I'm over, I'm somewhere else. We used, uh, they actually brought magicians, you know, into the CIA to, to, to train um, us in not, not exactly the one I just described, but the other kind of thing is like, we would do stuff under surveillance. So there's surveillance following you around and you kind of, go through a little configuration like a double corner kind of thing and in that double corner maybe you put a package down or you pick a package up or you make a make a signal or a mark or you hand off something to somebody who goes you know somewhere else but in doing this the training included magical magic techniques to teach you how to redirect people's perceptions away from what you were doing you know so in the same way that a magician would you know try to direct your your perception so that to to be able to achieve the effect that he's trying to achieve, if I was doing what we would call a, a brush pass where you're handing off a package to an agent who's, you know, you're going to only touch your, your paths are only going to cross for one second. You're going to hand something off and that agent is going to then go in one direction. You're going to go in the other. And all of this is supposed to be happening in a brief gap, you know, where the surveillance can't see you, but maybe they can. And so because maybe they can, you also layer in, a bit of this magic technique to try to redirect their attention away from the actual handoff of the, uh, of the, of the material or whatever it is that you're handing off to the person. So they, they brought these guys in and they, they really use them, you know, quite a bit to try and establish and teach people, um, you know, how to, how to do that sort of thing. And then, and then, you know, other variations on that. But I mean, the whole concept of what we were trying to do in Moscow or what we had to do in order to do our job, you know, you can imagine if you're, if you're living someplace and you're under 24 seven surveillance and you have to go out and physically meet somebody or exchange something with them um, you know, how are you going to do it, you know, and not be seen. And, and, uh, and so that was, you know, it took us down that realm. And so it was kind of two sided thing about perception of Moscow. One was like my own, like when I would be at that moment where I had to make a decision if I was for sure without, you know, if I for sure did not have surveillance um, I would, be as 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 alert and as my perceptions would be as heightened as I'd ever been in my life. Um, And, and, uh, and on the other hand, we were trying to manipulate their perception of what was going on, um, you know, in another way. So all that stuff was kind of, um, you know, and the other thing I I was going to mention too, it's funny. We used to talk about seeing ghosts. (laughs) That was our, that was our, uh, that was our term for, but it's just a term for the fact that when you would, no matter what happened, when you would let's say you did an operation, you go out and you'd be able to do this thing to make surveillance think you're somewhere else. And so then you go and you test and you do different things to make sure you really don't have surveillance. Go in and out of apartment buildings, you know, different things. This is after you already are 99% sure you don't have surveillance. You do things to try and, you know, if by somehow by some mistake uh, you've made a mistake, you're going to flush them out by doing provocative. We call it provocative maneuvers. You know, so you so you do all of that then you go to do the actual operational act, whatever that might be. So at the end of this hours of doing all these things I just described, now maybe you're, you know, going into a courtyard behind a Soviet apartment building where you're going to meet an agent in the kids' playground, or maybe you're going to go around a corner and leave a package under a bush or you're going to, those are the things you're doing. At that moment when, when you're about to really do it, we would see ghosts. We would see all of a sudden you'd be seeing not physical ghosts but you would you would your 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 heightened perception would cause everything to look suspicious, and any human being yeah. that you saw seemed to be a surveillance and we actually had it, there has a, there's a history of a few officers, one in particular who just really couldn't pull the trigger on his operations because every time every time he got to where he had to put that package on the ground or meet that agent, he was seeing the ghost and he would abort Because that was what we were trained to do is if you thought you were under surveillance at that point, then you would not do whatever you were going to do. You know, you'd abort the mission and, you know, there would be some provision with the agent's communication plan to do it on another day or something like that. And he couldn't do it. And he just, you know, was was struggling every time he uh, virtually every time he went out. And uh, so, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting how these, you know, I, and I, I guess in the remote viewing and stuff like that, just because it's the only time I experienced anything close to feeling like I had a level, <laughs> some special level of perception, you know, and uh, yeah. but even that didn't come close to being the real thing that you can do.
2: Well, I can see how that can become a problem. You know, that, uh, it's reminding me of uh, how do you feel about, um, is there actual, do you feel like there's actual time slips where maybe you are perceiving something that is about to happen or do you know what I'm talking about just before yeah. it happens.
1: You know, I, I don't know. I, I, it's funny because I'm, you have certain things that happen that don't, I guess I do see some things happen occasionally like that, but not enough in my life to make me feel like it was a for me, you know? Um Yeah. You know, I, I feel like another thing too, would be like trying to cultivate it, you know, trying to, there's things that if you constantly, if you consciously work on cultivating, you can kind of develop, I guess. And I haven't really worked, you know, in that, in that direction. Um, it's kind of like memory. I mean, I, I had something happen to me the other night. This is not exactly on the same, but it's a little bit like this. I was, I went to bed the other night. I went to bed the other night and I play guitar and sing. I used to write songs and, and, um, I was, I was in bed. I'd been in bed for like half an hour and I was almost asleep. And suddenly I remembered the opening two lines to some song that I had completely forgotten that I had ever written. This is, you know, 40 years in the past. And I had, wow. I had completely, I mean, that song was completely gone from my mind and all of a sudden I heard the lyrics and could hear the melody. And then I thought, Oh wow, this is interesting. And I'm kind of waking up cause I don't want to lose this cause I remember it was, it was a good song that I liked and, but I could, all I could remember was the first two lines. So then I kind of went back almost to sleep and then I picked up two more, you know, two more lines and then the second verse. And after at that point I had the first two verses I still couldn't remember the chorus, and I said, "I got to get up. I got to get up." So I got up and I came into my little studio room and took out my guitar and turned on my iPhone so I could use it for like note taking, right? And I and then I and then I suddenly remembered the whole song. And then I when when I remembered it, I played the whole thing start to finish. Remembering all the words, all the chords and everything. And this is something that I swear I have not even crossed my mind in more than 40 years. So, you know, how you dig something like that out sort of in a way that it just kind of manifests itself for you. That's what I'm wondering about is how do you make yourself more receptive to that sort of thing? And how do you, because I don't think I've done a good job of that, you know, and that was something where it sort of happened.
2: I hope you recorded that. I hope you got
1: yeah, it now. I, 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 I got Hopefully it now. It. it won't go. It's not going to go away. It's not a very good recording. I'm I'm sort of like this old, half sleep deprived guy sitting there. But you know, I got it down, and um, and now I I you know, and then I I there was one other verse that I I didn't remember that night, and I I subsequently was able to remember that, and so yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'll I'll uh, at some point I'll play it and put it on my Facebook. <laughs> it was kind yeah, I a, kind of a love... new discovery for me. Yeah,
2: it really is. I'd yeah. love to hear that, but. I have heard now that we're talking about our current situation, I have heard many, many occurrences just like that. Mm
0: -hmm. Things
2: of returning to them that they lost or Mm -hmm. exactly what you're talking about. Mm
0: -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. I
2: don't know if the shutdown, because just before the shutdown happened, I was on the phone with somebody. When it just came mm-hmm. down, it was March third. I, I tracked it down, so I know the dates now. It was March third. I was in. I was actually having a conversation with a guy. He's actually by coincidence, he's a musician. So we were talking, and he said he feels like there's going to be a, sh- a big shift coming soon. And I went, well, well, how do you think that's going to happen for the whole world? How's this going to happen? And uh during the conversation i got up i got in my car and for some reason i had to top off my gas tank which was a very odd thing to do if you ask me because i didn't really Mm -hmm. need gas the conversation but i did it Mm -hmm. he said well what are you doing i said well actually i drove down the gas station and i i drove down crenshaw and now i'm at the corner gas station he said isn't that that where the refinery is i turned around i looked at the refinery i said yeah it's right there and uh That's where Dow Chemical Company was. Anyway, we had this whole theory about Crenshaw and how haunted and weird and bizarre Mm -hmm. time shifts are happening on Crenshaw. And I looked at the guy that was, you know, they're supposed to put the money in the register and then turn on the gas. Mm -hmm. All his electric stuff shut off. Everything shut off. And I was watching him. I'm on the phone talking. And I went, wait a minute. And his whole thing shut down. And this guy started. This young guy started sweating bullets. He was very terrified. You know what I mean? Like he maybe hit the wrong mm-hmm. button or something. And mm-hmm. I said, well, this is strange. I, I told uh, my friend on the phone, I said, you know what? The shutdown's happening right now. He said, what do you mean? I said, we're talking about something that's going on immediately while we're talking about it. And I told the guy that was doing trying to work the electronics and the cash register and everything, I said, uh, can you please just calm down? And so I said it like to calm down. And so I'm trying to to help him just refocus and calm down so the electronics will turn back on. I had a feeling.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and you know when it worked, he calmed down
1: yeah.
2: and it all t- went back online. I said, oh, good. It's back mm-hmm. online. So. I was mm-hmm. driving home. He said, why did you do that? Why did you? I said, I have no idea. He said, but yeah. that's the way it's going to come down. So that was the the day. The next day, I actually went to one friend's house. After that, it's been locked down ever since. That was Hello. it. Everything flipped. Wow. wow
0: I know that's, that's how abrupt
2: it was. Yeah. And I was able to backtrack and figure out what was I doing because we we're mm-hmm. kind of, me and him were expecting it. And I don't know how many people worldwide were but I didn't mm-hmm. know it would be totally the whole world. I had no idea. I knew it was a big change and it's mm-hmm. happening now. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware
0: yeah.
2: it would be worldwide. Well, or this extent. Oh well,
0: sure. true.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely is. Yeah, and I had a que- question. Do you think that you it, something reminded me of this a minute ago and I, I just wanted when I was talking about digging out an old memory that it was completely gone, um, yes, is, is there any similarity between that? I, 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 here, I'm, there was another thing that I worked on at one point, a project of mine, that I was doing just for, sort of for fun, but I actually thought it would be a, a, a possible project or even like a, an enterprise. And it was called, I called it the Memory Lane Experiment. For me, what happened was I I, I went back to where I was living when I was five years old in Washington, D.C., and we were actually living in Bethesda, Maryland. And I went online, and I started doing things online to try and, like, I didn't know where we lived, but I kind of had an idea, and so I started looking Google Earth and kind of, you know, and as I kind of moved around, I found the apartment building, and all of a sudden I was seeing street names that I remembered. And then as I saw the street names that I remembered, all of a sudden the memories from that period when I was five started kind of flooding back, kind of coming alive. You know what I mean? They were like, it was yeah. like a lot. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, I remember things that I long, long, long buried deep, deep, deep in my, you know, kind of lost, I guess, basically. Yeah. And I thought, wow, what a cool thing, you know, because like when you get older, like my mom now is 92. And, you know, she's having a real hard time remembering stuff. But what if you had – because what I did is I set up, like, a timeline on a website. And I had, like, for each year, I went and found artifacts and, you know, and and things that I could either find online. Because remember, I moved around a lot, so I was in different places, you know, at different times. And I would go and find where we lived. I would look for things that I could put in there, personal things and photographs and stuff. And then it it created a kind of a memory jogger. And my thought about it was that, okay, when you get get older, right – and you've kind of lost all of that. Wouldn't it be nice to have it, you know, <laughs> to sort of have have that sort of thing to kind of trigger or or jog your memory? But I, is there anything related, you know, to the idea of like accessing lost memories as opposed to accessing other things in the supernatural or para paranormal? Is it is there any connection to that, or is it just a different process altogether?
0: There
2: is my my guest next week. Actually, she's in it. We're going to be talking about that. And uh, she's big on uh, whether we have creative dreams, past lives, and everything else. But I was Mm -hmm. at a – about jogging the memories. Uh, I cannot be hypnotized. I don't know why. I've been – many people have tried to put me under hypnosis, and I feel like it's a good relaxation technique in all this, you know. And uh, I went to this one – Uh, it was a really awesome group of people was up in Burbank. So I was at this, uh, this sort of a lot of paranormal people were there and it was really great. And she asked, you know, uh, did people believe in past lives? And I um, was the only one that didn't raise my hand. Everybody believed in past lives. And I Mm -hmm. said, well, why don't you believe in the past lives? Well, I really uh, don't understand how that would work or how, does one soul pass through many bodies or, you know, I don't mm-hmm. understand what it means by past life. And this is what you said mm-hmm. to make really good sense to me. And it's the only way that I have had it make sense that we have a DNA memory of those in our past. We have the mm-hmm. DNA it's written on us and that that's the past lives is actually there. Our DNA has led us here, and it has memory for everything. Mm -hmm. And that's the the lives that she particularly is is asking us to remember. And I'm like, I was kind of shocking that our DNA Mm -hmm. has a memory, and I totally believe that because I react and do things. Let's say, my I left uh, New York, and my yaya. Had already had a stroke, but she was was, uh, uh, wonderful, and she was kind of mean, you know what I mean? Because she was Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. cutting corners with people, and she knew everything. I was little. I found her extremely fascinating, so I would kind of taunt her a little bit, you know what I mean?
0: Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
2: She told me to to get away, and I would move closer to her. I just found her fascinating. You know what I mean? I didn't know what she was going to do to me, but I had to be close to her. Uh And Uh um, I have these memories of, okay, so I have her. I know my Yaya, and I was little when I left. So I can talk Greek baby talk, but unfortunately I can't. (laughs) Anyway, um, we came here, and so when I'm cooking, my mother cries. I said, Ma, why do you have to cry every time I'm cooking? She says, You cook just like your grandmother. And oh. I, I, inside of me, I have a memory of her cooking. But I was so little mm. I couldn't accomplish that task. But as an adult, mm-hmm. I cooked just like her, you know. That's and amazing. One That's time, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. We have a DNA memory. Uh, And there's another thing. I was in there making something, and I went, this sounds so familiar. Why do I know how to make this? And Mm -hmm. I actually went on Wikipedia and said, okay, why? I I put all the ingredients and said, what is this dish? It ended up on Wikipedia, and it was from the uh, immigrants that that actually made this sort of uh, cabbage dinner with me Mm -hmm. and you no know, vegetables or whatever, but they made it a certain way, but they were actually from a small state in upstate New York is where they immigrated to. And that's where I was from. So I must oh, have, wow. yes, that that's where I, I lived. And I must have picked it up. It was like a Slavic dish.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And, and I found out when I did my DNA, I have Balkan roots along with, uh, Greek and everything else I have.
0: whatever mm-hmm, make. Mm-hmm. But What
2: I'm saying is that you have it written in your DNA and I think that's where it's coming from. It's all there yeah. but to be accessed. Yeah. So you have an amazing tool that you have been able to access your own memories and that is, to me, a great thing
1: because we I, don't journal as yeah, no. I mean, I wonder about that because I think it's really important and I, I'm now as I get, you know, deeper into life and you want to you know, it's like, well, wow, what was the point of doing all that if you forgot? <laughs> if you forget exactly. it and can't remember, <laughs> you know. Well, that's and, why uh, uh,
2: memoirs and di- diaries are so important. Uh, that's yeah. why I really love reading biographies and di- uh, diaries because of that.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, no, I, I agree. Our,
2: especially your your memoirs would be very important and interesting.
1: Well, I don't think they'll be important, but they certainly won't be too boring. I don't think. anyway. So, you know, uh, I've done I've done a pretty good job of not being bored, but I, you know I may have not excelled in some other ways, but I, I really feel like it's been a, a series of adventures and misadventures. But um, yeah, you know I, I I actually I you know writing a memoir you know, this book about Moscow I'm in it, but I'm one of many participants and it's not a memoir you know i mean there's a first person component to it because i was one of the participants but i also i interviewed other people so the idea of doing a memoir is something else and i've, I've struggled because i feel like it needs to make sense <laughs> it needs to have a theme it's, it's not just you know well i did this and then i did that and then this happened and then that happened and then i did this and then I did that it needs to really you know, and I have not figured out. So I don't think I'm I'm quite ready, but, I, you know, I hope, I hope I'm ready soon because it's certainly got plenty to write about.
2: Yeah, this sounds like uh, you're on the right track here and doing that timeline thing. So now I'm yeah, uh, on many yeah. – I'm telling you, I'm not having fun going through Germany. Because, <laughs> I, I yeah. like, it's all interacted with uh, issues with, uh, you know, really old-time Germany and the Franks and the uh, – all this other mm-hmm. I'm going through. The, there has to be a purpose and intent for our desire to study and get these things down. That's the way I feel. There's mm-hmm. a, we're being drawn to do something that is a very important because maybe we're going to be needing this someday in the future.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you when think
0: that to what's so? going
1: on right? You think of what's going on right now may be a, a, a pivot point in you know the way things go for this entire world? Yes, you know, not just a, right. not just a temporary thing, but something that really changes it.
2: The way I feel about this is that this is just one of the uh, changes. That there's another one coming, and I don't want people to get really upset about it. But I think it's going to be another kind of crackdown because people are seem very eager, eager, excuse me, to return to what it was like when. It may never be the same, and that we we have to change and adjust. we have mm-hmm. to that's why I brought it up that um we
0: mm-hmm.
2: have been raised on change, and so have I.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: you know we have to be able to change any second, okay, now it's this, now it's that, okay, you know me mm-hmm. and our uh, a, a friends have discussed what occasion goes down. What if it does, then we're going to have to learn mm-hmm. another way to communicate, you know, and we will. Great.
1: I've really been talking to my wife about what if we end up in some dystopian situation, right? Because I can, I, to me, it feels like we could, you know, I've never been one to, I mean, actually I I grew up in a very optimistic kind of mindset and when I thought of the future, I I read sci-fi my whole childhood and everything. And I always kind of, you know, one, not dystopian sci-fi, but you know, the sci-fi that kind of envisioned, you know, continued progress uh, up to the point that, you know, you're, populating different worlds and things like that and a lot of adventures but the idea that society was going to move forward you know and then i i i always kind of innately felt we were headed in that direction until recently and now you know and and i'm not speaking specifically about our exact political situation here although that's a big part of it but but just the idea that no you know there's a kind of an unraveling you know taking place and and um, and maybe that idea of forward movement is really not right, and maybe that was sort of an illusion, you know. And maybe maybe we are headed for something quite uh, adventurous. <laughs> I mean, that was yeah, that's the positive yeah. spin I'll put on it. It's you know? gonna be it's um, you
2: no, know, it's gonna be good because I don't say it's bad. I'm just saying people's reaction might be some of them bad, but yeah. I I feel like uh, it's a positive thing. It has to be that um mm-hmm. I think we've we've uh taken on in such a way that uh we've hurt our planet enough. We've just done a lot of things that are enough. And that mm-hmm. Mother Nature has actually taken care of a whole bunch of stuff, like putting everybody on time out to give her a breather. And all of a mm-hmm. sudden, within two months, all the animals are back in, in Griffith Park or not Griffith Park, uh, mm-hmm. Central Park. Uh, what, what else is going on? It's like it's incredible. Yeah. That it's clear, clear water in Venice. I don't think I've seen that mm-hmm. in my lifetime.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree.
0: That's what I mean. It's, no, it's no, no, no.
1: There's there's a big difference. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And I I I don't know. I mean, well, those are the. So, there are definitely some positive, you know, side. Of, Side effects, or maybe there are underlying principal effects of this this whole thing. For yeah. me, I kind of feel like we're the world and this country were in need of a good slap in the face, and we just got it, you know. And and maybe oh, yeah. maybe it'll uh, maybe it'll kind of wake us up in certain ways. Um, but then again, you know, I continue to see things that make me think, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen like that. <laughs>
0: Well,
2: I'm right there with you, I agree with uh, your commentary and uh, everything that we've been seeing on Facebook and talking about that, you know, things are quite uh, extraordinary, and uh, I feel like, you know, we just have to be prepared, and if we go in a a spiritual manner and go with love, I think we'll have less fear of what's Mm
0: -hmm. next, Mm -hmm. you know, because
2: it must have happened somewhere before. Uh, how how could uh, – because me and a, a friend had been tracking it, but we felt like we couldn't really have this conversation in front of a lot of people because it was too odd. And now it's not odd at all because it all came down and that um, I don't know why it happened right in front of my eyes at the same time that I understood what was going to happen next. You know, I I don't – I didn't know – it was gonna be the world. I just thought, well maybe my town or, you know, I didn't think mm-hmm. of the world but I knew I knew it was shutting down. But it's mm-hmm. just a very odd I think for some people it's bringing out the best in them. For other people they're mm-hmm. panicking and they're trying to go back to the old way when a new way I think is uh, is happening. A new maybe a new old way. Maybe more
1: up- altruism. No, I I agree. You know it's funny, I I've been I've been sort of like to say this because I know there's a lot of suffering going on. I mean, yeah. and in, you know, my own family, my wife's, you know, her. she works in a casino as a floor manager and they shut down early on. So she's been, you know, out of work. And so that creates financial pressures. My work has sort of continued, although not as, you know, people, I'm doing the work, but people aren't paying, you know? And so we are under pressure and everything and, you know, financially we're feeling it, but, I kind of feel a little bit energized by it or a little, you know what I mean? It's like, Oh good. You know, things have been a little boring and that's a very, and I don't, and I feel like that's a kind of a callous thing to say because I'm, I'm, there's a lot of suffering part of this and I know that, and I don't need to be, you know, that, but I'm just saying is that the idea of shaking things up, the idea that, you know, people need to re re, there's a reset going on, you know, some kind of a reset button is being hit. Um, and we don't know, you know, the idea that the assumptions about how things would be going forward, this really shakes those assumptions because you realize how fragile everything is. And, uh, and so I'm, but I'm sort of, I feel good. I feel kind of, I don't know, maybe embracing the adventure of it. But I don't know, you know, check with me a little while. If it gets really bad, I may change my mind about that. But, you know, so far, that's been kind of the, the feeling that I've had um, as I look ahead and wondering where, where this is going to end up. Well,
2: I feel that it's really brought the best in a lot of people. So many people are reaching out any way they can. You know, mm-hmm. like in Italy, the people singing out their mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the beauty of uh, of people reaching out to each other. So, you know, sometimes that's what it takes. I hate to say it. We take, we have to take a hard hit just to uh, bring out the best in us.
1: You know, uh, I I, I agree with that. And I wonder, though, I mean, I just it just this should have been there should have been more of that in America. And I mean, you know, there's sort of like some obvious, you know, you can blame certain people or certain things about it. But the fact of the matter is that we're so politicized, so, so polarized in this country that we didn't get nearly as much of that as we should have. You know what I mean? And I'm talking about that feeling of solidarity, that feeling of common purpose, the feeling of we're in this together and the sense of, you know, because oftentimes there's so many people doing so many acts of kindness and love and courage out there now. And 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 yet, you know, mostly it's like bickering this and that, you know, and and I mean, you know, and so that's the, the dominant feeling is one of irritation, frustration, you know, as opposed to kind of getting that feeling. And every time I do see something, it makes me feel that way. I really wish there was more. I wish I could find more of it. And I bet there is more out there that I'm just not picking up on. But I think it's a really important idea that that's, that's a manifestation of this situation that people are, people are, you know, there is good, a lot of good, a lot of people showing really, really good character, you know, in this process.
2: Yeah. I think that's what uh, these tests are made for to test our character And to find out who your real friends are, you know, and uh, to bring more love about. And I'm sure there's a lesson in everything, especially this lesson here. I joined a a neighborhood app for just my area, and it has been very helpful. People are – this one girl, uh, early on I knew that we were going to need masks, so I jumped on it and started right away, and people were really arguing with me there was a lot of negativity and stuff, and then they had to come back and kind of eat a little crow and say, I don't know if you're psychic or what, uh, but, <laughs> yes, we have to wear math And I said, well, <laughs> I hate to say I told you so, but, yes, I am psychic. <laughs> put
0: on your mask. <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact. <laughs>
2: As a matter of fact, yes, and uh, will you please put yeah. on the math? So now, you know, it's a normal thing. We're all going out in our masks and gloves, and I'm kind of liking being dressed up like a bandit. It's not – it's isn't, mm-hmm. it's agreeing with me. So what you're saying no, no. about the positives, it's kind of agreeing with me because we're operating on a whole different mode now.
0: Before, mm-hmm.
2: we were the grind mode. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. Now we know we get to do this. I get to go mm-hmm. get dressed like a bandit and go to the, the pharmacy. I get to get out and go get a Brio once in a while and bring it back. You know, we're all maxed mm-hmm. up, but I don't know. There's like a new uh, courtesy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I enjoy my personal space. I don't like to be in a crowd up with people, you know. Oh, but yeah, that's me the, too. That's me, though.
1: Do you have any secret – this is a lot. I mean, this is – I think Larry David has kind of made this joke, but I've been feeling it too. I mean, I, I work – I have an office. I work from home a lot. And most of the time when I have to go to the office, I'm kind of annoyed that I have to go because I'd rather just be here working because, you know, it's just like my comfort zone and my creative place and everything. And so on one level, to me, this whole thing is like, oh, great. I don't have to go out. I mean, honestly, you know, and I'm wondering if that's if I'm turning into a recluse over that because it's kind of like, you know, I just feel like I, I guess I live my life a lot of it in creating things or doing things or, you know, working in ways that I can do at home. And, and, uh, you know, I'm pretty comfortable doing this. I mean, I want to be able to get out and go do some things, but I, I, am I, hoping that I won't have quite as many treks across town to do physical meetings that are not that productive, you know, like I have now, yes, like, exactly. for example, you know, and, you know, I go to the lawyer's office in Beverly Hills for one meeting at two o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, I leave at 12 to be sure I can get there and I get home at 530 and it's all I did was one meeting, you know, whereas if I do it on the phone, you know, or do it with Zoom or something like that, it took an hour, an hour and a half and uh, I got a lot more done, and, you know, like that. So, I mean, I'm hoping that some of this will stick um, and, and those things will become too. more, you know, more acceptable, you know.
2: Yeah, because we have to learn these new skills, you know, and we have to be able to function and... uh You know what? I I really have always really worried about what people think about me, like when I'm out walking around. I don't know if women are more like that than men. I think so. I think this is a woman thing. But I'm realizing Mm. when you get the mask on and your glasses and your hair on and this, that, you don't really give a damn what people think.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't go about your business.
2: You don't care who's watching. You just go about your business and you're minding your own business and you just go about your day. And I prefer it that way.
1: I, no, that's, that's an interesting comment yeah i like i feel that i have these like yeah. cool you know i I don't have a i don't have a real mask but my sister god bless her she's an amazon buys everything on amazon kind of person and at one point she found what she thought was the greatest deal in the world it's like a it's a navy seal i don't know what they call it but it goes around your neck and then you can pull it up and it can be a mask or you can yeah. do different things with it and wear like a hat you know and she and they have these. Yeah. The ones she got have these really cool designs on them and stuff. And she got like ten of them and stuck it in my suitcase about two years ago. And they've been sitting in that suitcase forever and I've never even touched them. And now all of a sudden I'm I've got a I'm a fashion plate when I go out with my different masks, my color coordinated masks. But you know, but like you put how, them up, put the mask on that. and you you feel cool. You feel like anonymous or something, you know?
2: Exactly. It's just uh, I I don't know I that part of it. I've enjoyed. I'm frustrated with how people seem to be disorganized and disorientated. You know what I mean? Mm. It's really, that part kind of bothers me. Meaning, I've been calling trying to get uh, my eyes done because I have cataracts now.
0: <laughs> and, you
2: know, the the weirdest, uh, so- I went and showed up for appointment yesterday. I had called and I actually called ahead again the same day. Showed up. Nobody's in the office. The whole thing shut down. So then I called from mm-hmm. the cases over by Torrance Memorial, and I called by mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the officer. I said I just called you three hours ago to to reconfirm. Should I show up in my mask and what I'm going to do anyway in my gloves and all that? And she says, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, but I was thinking, what's up with everybody? This is not an excuse to be slackers. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so it was irritating.
1: Yeah. We used to have a joke about that when I was when I was. uh, Mike, when I would make during my film career, I had a company called Quantum Entertainment that was a film distribution company that distributed our films around the world, and and I was also in the Philippines. And the funniest thing was, they, my partner used to say, "My God, in the Philippines, they would have a typhoon that would, you know, you'd think it would last three or four days, but for like a month, nothing could be done. Right? There was like no." No no opportunity to get anybody to respond to. In those days, it was faxes and stuff like that. And the answer was, oh, yes, the typhoon. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of that going on here. Um, it's yeah. Not, it's an excuse to be a slacker.
2: Exactly. Because the same day I called this other doctor that was an eye doctor, too. And I said, I just want to be sure you have me on the books for, well, we can't do it. There was sort of this, she told me. Well, I can't give you an appointment right now because we've got to get the first people that were canceled before and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what the heck? So I just, I have to just simmer that horse down. You know what I
0: mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, we can still get things done, but it doesn't seem like that is
1: so. you got to be a little keep, patient.
2: Yeah. So it's a new deal and I may never get my eyes fixed. Maybe, you know.
1: Well, you know i have it's funny you say that because I have an eye that I'm trying to get i, I had it last year was my year for getting a lot of repair work done, so yeah. I got a new hip and one eye and you know some teeth stuff, and so I thought, well, I'm glad I got all that done last year because this year all of that none of that would have happened right, but I've yeah. still got some uh I got some more work like that that I need to get done, and right now it's not oh. not happening obviously, you know, so
2: no, thank God, like, because I got a lot of stuff done just before this came down, you know, because I had mm-hmm. to have this heart procedure, then I had to have this gastric procedure, and oh, wow. I had this other thing. So I got everything done, and by the end of March, I was still in, the end of February, I was still in recovery. So now, I'm on the other side, raring to go to get the rest fixed, and, you know, I had to really look at the reality. Maybe, you know, it won't get fixed. I don't know. I want to do it, but I'm going to still show up. I'm still showing up for everything. So I'm doing the mm-hmm. telecommunication the tele-doctor visits, I'm doing all of that. You know, I'm still doing it. Oh, that's good. You no. Know? That's and good. And I, yeah, so we just got to know how to back up and take stuff gracefully. Well, I really, mm-hmm. really have enjoyed your talk. You know, it was wonderful to have you uh, on the show today, mm-hmm. Michael. It was really uh, very insightful.
1: I don't know about that, but it's fun talking to you and, and, uh, I, I enjoyed it, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of, uh, we got a lot of got pretty wide ranging, you know, discussions, <laughs> but, uh, that's fine. I mean, I really, I really yeah. enjoy it. i you know, I hope that we get through this thing. Okay. And we all end up on the other side of it and people get, you know, you're not going to, there's going to be a new normal. There's not going to be a return to the way it was. I don't think any time in the, you know, maybe never. And, uh, but it's kind of, you know, People, You're right, and I think in focusing on people, the good that's coming out in people, maybe that will create some kind of a positive change, you know. Meanwhile, we just have to hang in there.
2: That's right. Everybody just hang in there, and I wish all my best to your family and uh, all your Thank friends you. and all all of, uh, your peeps on Facebook that I've been reading. It's a uh, it's quite interesting <laughs> for all of you. <laughs> hey,
0: uh, you got some, my, smart, my you got some smart you people. It,
2: yeah. <laughs> You got some intelligence. Intelligi- how do you say it? stuff? Yeah,
0: like so. yeah,
2: maybe
1: I don't know. It's
2: smart. A little too yeah. smarter than smarter than me, but uh, no, I don't know. No, I don't think it's...
1: that. Come on, you got Come a different
2: on. kind of. All smart. right, all right. <laughs> all right, So, give okay. us the title kind of your book and where people can get your stuff. And what okay, well are? my
1: book the well the one that's you know, my Hollywood book, John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood, best way to get it is on Amazon actually for all of them it's on Amazon it's because otherwise they're spotty here and there somewhere. But that one has uh has done well and if you like Hollywood behind the scenes stuff, um, that's a good one. And uh we the um Year of the Spy is coming. Not out yet. And uh you know, that's the one that is going to be, I think, my magnum opus, I, I hope, because it's a really big story about what happened in Moscow in 1985. And um, and it's, you know, I'm just struggling with the CIA and getting them to um, agree to that. It, you know, we've kind of cleansed it of all classified information. Um, and so, you know, that's that's the one that's coming soon, but it'll be available there. And I have dot as my website for that, which if anybody ever wonders what's happening to it, they can check there. But um, those are the two things, the, the two bigger ones. There's a couple of smaller. Oh, I will put a pitch in for my wife's book. My wife's book, do. The da- daughter, daughter of Samar. My wife is from a small uh, fishing village on the island of Samar in the Philippines, and she had an incredible upbringing. Um, her journey—talk about journeys, right? Her journey has been a journey unlike any other that I know of. From from basically growing up in what was almost like another century. And then finding her way, first, first one in her family to finish high school, the first to go finish college. You know, she just has done all these things. And she was the youngest of 12 kids, a family of a fisherman who went out in a one-man boat, paddling his way out and catching blue marlin, just like the old man in the sea kind of a thing. Um, and so her story she used to tell me stories you know when we were eating just around all the time and they were like so wonderful and so fascinating so we started collecting them started you know i started recording what when she told them to me and taking notes and it was created a really really lovely book that i think i, I, I has a great heart to it it's called daughter of samar and it's uh, on 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 amazon and uh, i i like that i think I think I like that better than any of the other ones <laughs> just because it's so sweet and so human, you know, it's got a good, got yeah. a really good heart behind it.
2: Wow. And she's a beautiful lady. And just really, uh, I perceive her as a very loving person and what an awesome partner yeah. too. Um, yeah. what, slowly say your website again.
1: Well, the one I was mentioning was year of the which is the, uh, the the one for the book for the book that's coming out I also have MichaelDSellers.com which is my my personal website um, and a couple of other ones that probably are too esoteric to be trying to plug here but uh, if, if there's anybody out there who was a fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Tarzan he was the author of Tarzan and John Carter of Mars I have the Tarzan files and the John Carter files or two other websites of mine that are out there that I I'm kind of a That's a niche thing that I'm an aficionado of, I suppose, you know, and so uh, I'm part of that community and enjoy it a lot.
2: Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I want to thank you again for being on, and you have a standing open, come back anytime, and uh, I wish you and yours the best of everything. And uh, God bless you, Michael and family, and thank you so much for being on The Paranormal and the Sacred. Thank you. Thank
1: you so much. It was really a pleasure. I enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you so much.
2: You're welcome, Michael. It was fun. Take care. Oh, so, I have a song for Michael, but before that, I want to let you know that we'll be here next week. Jacqueline Thomas is going to be our fabulous guest, and we're going to be talking about prophetic dreams and anything else we feel like talking about. And I want to put a little plug in for
0: the Save the
2: Children Foundation, Incorporated. You can reach them at guidestar.com. And if you want to go over there and um, donate a little bit for the kids, uh, we really appreciate it. And it's GuideStar, G-U-I-D-E-Star.com. And we will be back next week, same time, same station. And the Paranormal Sacred is a place where the unheard may be heard, and you're able to speak and talk about anything you want to talk about. And we're so grateful, Michael Sollars. And then next week, Next Friday is Jacqueline Thomas, and then we have another speaker after that. And uh, I'm going to play a little song for Michael, and uh, I wish him all the best, him and his family. What an awesome person, how much he's done for our country he continues to do. God bless you all, and I wish you all over the world as I'm thinking about you tonight, which I really do, and I pray for you every day, all my listeners. You're in my prayers, and I just want you to know that you're not alone. And I love you very much, and take care. And here's a song for Michael Sellers. Hope you like it. Bye, everybody.